0: Look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And there is so much happening. There is a ridiculous amount of stuff happening that I don't really quite know where to start. But I'll start by telling you our guests uh, to talk about the news of the week. We're going to have from the NFL Network, Aditi Kinkabwala, who covers, coincidentally, the Steelers and the Browns most often. And she will be all over the story of Kevin Stefanski, the coach of the Browns, and Joel Batonio, the left guard of the Browns, being out of this huge football game on Sunday night on NBC, on Peacock, on Telemundo. Um, And they're unfortunately going to miss that game because they have tested positive for COVID. That's the news of Tuesday, the very big news. So we'll talk to Aditi first off and then. We're going to talk to Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. A lot of COVID-related questions to, to Dr. Sills uh, is very enlightening in his conversation. It is, I'm recording this Tuesday night. Uh, I did Sills late Tuesday afternoon, and um, uh, I did a Deedee's uh, conversation just very recently in the 8 o'clock hour. So, anyway, before we get to their conversations, just two quick points I wanted to make, and I won't belabor either one. But the first one is about the Philadelphia Eagles and what Doug Peterson did on Sunday night. And look, it is his team. He can do what he wants with his team, he can coach the team the way he wants. However, having said that, I believe that Doug Peterson crossed. A kind of an ethical coaching line. When there are two teams whose playoff futures rest on the result of a football game that you're involved in, and it's early in the fourth quarter of that game, and it's a three point game, and it can go either way, and you decide because of loyalty to a number three quarterback, Nate Sudfeld, who you wanted to get some playing time to before the end of the year, you decide. To put him into a three-point game, he is horribly either unprepared or not suited for this moment. But in his first 11 plays, he throws one interception, he loses a fumble, and he gets sacked twice. He was not ready for prime time, and no pun intended, but he was not. And obviously, Washington wins the game. It's not guaranteed that Philadelphia would have won the game if Jalen Hurts stayed in. He wasn't playing great, but I just thought it was a terrible coaching decision. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, I think more than it has even more recently, I, I think Doug Peterson is going to have problems with some players on his own team for in the middle of a very close game against a division rival. Um, for. I don't want to say throwing the game away, but Nate Sudfeld had no business being in that game. Uh, And look, I applaud the Giants for mostly taking the high road, but I also applaud Joe Judge for saying that is not something ever that the New York Giants would do. And good for him for saying that. Um, So that's how I feel about that one. And, you know, so a lot of people in the last few hours have been saying, well, what's the NFL going to do about this? A head coach missing a playoff game, can you push this back a few days? Push this The NFL is not going to do that, people, nor after the way the NFL handled this season, should they make new rules for the postseason. You know, unfortunately, however it happened, Kevin Stefanski, uh, Joel Batonio have tested positive. And, you know, the ironic thing, which I discussed with uh, Dede Kink- Kinkabwala uh, in our conversation, if somehow they win the game against Pittsburgh on Sunday night, <laughs> there's going to be a very, very short week if those two absolutely key guys for the Cleveland Browns um, are able to play in the next game, which is most likely to be against the Kansas City Chiefs. So it's, uh, it's a tough week for the Cleveland Browns, a really tough week. And imagine you're Betonio. You know, you have gone through 1-15 and 0-16 seasons the longest tenured Brown you finally get to the playoffs and you get the rug pulled out from under you you know many things in this NFL season have been unfair and many things are bummers what's happened to the Cleveland Browns is both so let's get to our interview with the NFL Network's Aditi Kinkabwala I'm very proud of pronouncing your name correctly um, and uh, we'll actually get into a little bit of Jocular back and forth about that. But here's my conversation with Aditi about all things Brown Steelers. Back on the podcast. So happy to be joined by Aditi Kinkabula of NFL Network. Uh, Aditi is in the unique position of all reporters in the United States. She covers the Browns and the Steelers, most notably. lives in Pittsburgh, right Aditi?
1: That is Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah, but you've had a lot of experience covering the Browns. So this playoff game Sunday night, Cleveland at Pittsburgh in the last of six NFL wildcard games uh, is absolutely totally right up your alley. But I've got to know what went through your mind when you heard the news today that Kevin Stefanski, the coach of the Browns, Joel Batonio, the Pro Bowl guard, uh, both tested positive and will not play in this game.
1: I mean, just tremendous disappointment because, quite frankly, Peter, at the end of the day, we're human beings, right? We do our job because we love telling stories. And it's funny because I've just been having this conversation at length with the Steelers left tackle, Alvin Nueva, about – why I got into this, what I love about this. Is it really about the schematics and the X's and O's, or is it about talking about people and characters? And so let's start with Joel Batonio. Joel Batonio is the longest tenured Browns player. After the Browns beat the Steelers on Sunday, Kevin Stefanski walks into the locker room, takes the game ball and he hands it to Joel Batonio. And it's because Betonio has lived through more upheaval, more coaching changes, more losses, more craziness than anybody else. And Kevin Stefanski looks at Joel and he says, you're going to the playoffs. And for that, I mean, I cannot there had to have been moments in Joel's life, in his professional life, where he never thought that this day would come. I mean, Miles Garrett said that to me after Sunday's game, that after 0-16, he just really didn't think this was happening. So here's this moment, this unbelievably classy guy, this young man who, through the most awful things, was still so patient, so wonderful to the media, always had something to offer, his coach recognizes him, his teammates recognize him and everything that he has been through for this moment. And now it's taken away from him. It just feels like the worst possible moment for it to happen. And I know that Joel is not engaging in ridiculously high risky behavior. You know, Sunday, he was asked, how are you celebrating? And he said, well, I'm gonna go home to my wife and my baby and I'll be at home with them. And it just speaks to the vagaries of the nature of this virus, really. And then as for Kevin Stefanski, I mean, Peter, I think he's the coach of the year. To be able to do what he has done, to be a first-year head coach with an entirely new staff, with a new offensive scheme, a new defensive scheme, not getting in front of his players until August, having to some sort, somehow build some sense of camaraderie and buck I mean, what? Two decades of a losing culture and to stay so steady. Do you know how many times I have asked to speak to his wife to know if he is this even keeled at home? I mean, this man never blinks. He's just, no matter what happens, he is steady and his team has taken on that persona. And so you just feel bad for them that this is what they have worked for. And all of a sudden it's sucked out from under them and likely through no fault of their own. It's just disappointing. That's what it yeah.
0: is. You know, um, Alan Sills, the NFL's uh, chief medical officer is is on the podcast this week. And when we recorded earlier, you and I, I should say are recording on Tuesday night. Um, and I recorded Alan Sills earlier and what was interesting is they have, through you know the, the science of genomic sequencing, um, a team at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, that looks at every positive test to see um, what it's connected to. Is it original? Is it, you know, have there been, is this the same strain of the virus that five other Browns have had or whatever? And they've started, they've really kind of perfected that this year, not perfected it, but they've really gone a long way in understanding it. And I get the impression that this was not uh, in either case of any of the positives with the with the Browns actually that is internal in the facility. It sounds like it was in in um, Dr. Sills' words, community spread. So whatever happened, it probably happened outside. And I immediately thought that uh, on Sunday night, I asked um, the Browns if I could get a few minutes with with uh, Stefanski after the game. And he called me from his car on the way home. His family was in the car. He was with his wife and his children. And he said, guys, say hi to Mr. King. Hi, Mr. King. You know, one of those things. <laughs> it was just kind of sweet. But um, – you know, and it just goes to goes to show you that, you know, there are so many unknowns in this weird, weird, weird season. And you're talking about Joel Betonio. He just went home to his kids. Well, or, or his wife and his kid. The, the crazy thing, I think, when I hear stories like that is that, well, these, these uh, nasal swabs came on Monday morning. So there's very little chance that this was spread on Sunday, right. you know it takes usually, you know, three to five days for a positive case to show up. So you almost have to ask yourself. And I'm sure the contact tracers, when they interviewed Betonio and Stefanski, were talking about let's go over every step that you that you took last Thursday. Let's go over your entire day. Let's go over everything on Friday. Everything you know. So, you know, and what's cool, I think, uh, about the process anyway they've gotten so much better that uh, contact tracing has basically ferreted out 36 positive cases this year that would have been kept in the facility for at least one day longer in each case and therefore could have easily started an outbreak. So, hey, the good thing, the only good thing I can think about is that they're able to close the facility today. Uh, Who knows, probably close it again tomorrow. But close it. And that definitely stops the spread. It doesn't help them prepare for the Steelers because you can't practice, but uh, it probably helps you uh, stop the spread of, you know, a further COVID cases inside the team.
1: But if there is one thing that I would say about that, so yes, absolutely. It helps contain the spread. And I think the genomic sequencing is so fascinating. I I feel Like when the Ravens had their outbreak and we know that their strength coach had sort of was identified as a source of a significant piece of that spread. I thought that that was really fascinating that they could, you know, sort of pigeonhole where it came from and figure out who was exposed as related to that. The the Browns have already been in this situation. They already dealt with this last week. Right. So they only had two sort of pseudo half practices last week and still played the Steelers incredibly well in a very, very tough game and a surprisingly tough game on Sunday. They were limited in what they could call, they were limited in what their offensive game plan was, and they still pulled out what they needed to pull out. And so, to that degree, Peter, I feel like this is 2020 to some degree. You know, it's you have to be nimble.
0: Yeah, that's it's, you know, being nimble is one thing, and that's obviously <laughs> wonderful. But, man, you get your head. I, I, I Look, this morning, uh, as you know, as we record this, I guess it was about 10 o'clock this morning. I finished filling out my all pro and my awards ballot for the Associated Press. My left guard is Joel Batonio. My coach is Kevin Stefanski. And I was just thinking about it. Look, Stefanski, his loss is big enough, but, you know, they're playing one of the best defensive fronts in all of football. And probably their best single player all of a sudden, you know, vanishes into thin air and they've got to replace him. How do you think they'll do it?
1: I I don't have an answer to that because, quite frankly, on this past Sunday, the Steelers were missing Cam Hayward and TJ Watt, their two best defensive players, part of what, not part of what, really what makes that defensive front go. And the Steelers still had four sacks. And so I explained that after the fact as well. Jedrick Wills and Wyatt Teller, the left tackle Jedrick Wills and the other guard, Wyatt Teller, had only just come back that week. They were still a little rusty. They were missing Bill Oca- Bill Callahan, the offensive line coach. J.C. Tredder and Joel Betonio had actually sort of handled some of the coaching duties. You know, Kevin Stavansky had said this is not like Bill Russell. They weren't actually really player coaches, but they had sort of manage the line to some degree with coach Callahan suffering from symptoms. And right. now you're missing the glue. You're missing the glue of that line against arguably one of the best defensive fronts in football. And you're a group that needed to kind of work off a little bit of rust yourself as an offensive line. So it feels so on a personal level, It feels like this is the guy you didn't want to miss the game this week. And then just purely on a schematic football level, this is a guy that is vitally important to everything that you're trying to do, be it protecting Baker Mayfield or getting that run game of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt to go off as it has for so long. I mean, this is a tough one. And again, it's when your two offensive line coaches are sick and when your guard is sick, you're just – We're still kind of on tenterhooks a little bit, Peter, waiting to see what comes out tomorrow, what comes out the next day.
0: Right. Do you know right now the status of Bill Callahan yet, one of the best offensive line coaches in football, and whether he's going to be available or is that known yet?
1: That has not been told to us yet, but Kevin Stefanski was honest enough to say that uh, he's actually been suffering from some symptoms that he hasn't been well. And I feel like that's a really important point to make in all of this that, football fans often take it as what is a competitive advantage what is not should a game be postponed should it not at the end of the day peter we need to sit here and say these people are suffering from an absolutely horrible virus that has right. affected some people to some drastic degrees and taken an inordinate amount of lives like at the the number one thought here is i hope that they get they are on route to recovery very quickly. And then they don't experience the worst of what this virus has shown to do to people, you know, and and we sometimes forget that piece of it. it. It makes me think of the Ravens defensive lineman, Calais Campbell, who had who has a pre-existing condition that makes him especially susceptible to the symptoms of this and I remember when he came back he also had a calf injury and Ravens defensive coordinator Wink Martindale said I think the covid was actually a bigger deal than the calf injury was. Wow. William, he's a linebacker for the Steelers. He had it and within a few days he said I don't wish this on anybody.
0: How about what's the condition of Miles Garrett now?
1: He's actually feeling great. I did ask him this, and he said he feels back to, you know, whatever he needs to feel. And, uh, you know, you talk about the...
0: Because it took him a while to get back to that point. It
1: did, yes. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know that he would necessarily characterize himself as 100%, but he's certainly feeling significantly better than he was immediately afterwards. Yeah. I'll make another point about Miles Garrett. You talk about emotional growth. As leaders, and I think that we've seen that out of both Miles Garrett and Baker Mayfield.
0: Yeah. Um, so as we uh, as we sit here right now, uh, it, you know, we're assuming obviously that the Browns are not going to have Kevin Stefanski. He, he will not be coaching. Mike Prefer, the special teams coach, will be coaching the game on Sunday night. Most well, certainly Alex Van Pelt, um, Stefanski's right hand, and will be taking over the offensive, play calling duties and, 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 and all that. What is the impact on this team, do you think, Aditi, from being around these guys?
1: So simply logistically speaking, Alex Van Pelt has handled the offensive meetings all year long anyway. So that doesn't change. This is a team that has unfortunately in the last few weeks had to get used to Zoom meetings. From what I've been told, Kevin Stefanski is still fully, completely a part of that. So his in-week contributions don't necessarily change. And I've also been told that he is not a guy that has a very heavy hand with Joe Woods, the defensive coordinator. He's obviously the play caller, but you already said it. Alex Van Pelt and him work hand in hand. So I don't expect that to be that significant. And that's not anything that should cow Alex Van Pelt in any way. He is experienced in that. So I don't think that um, you necessarily – Miss that voice to say yes. Let's go it. Uh, let's go for it on fourth down, or we're going to run this on this moment because Kevin Stefanski is a guy that empowers the people that work for him or work with him to do what they are charged to do. I just I'll come back to this. He is about as level and even a man as there is in the National Football League, and this team has taken on that personality and. You know, it's it's again, I apologize if I just said this already, but Baker Mayfield said he doesn't blink. And that's that has sort of an infectious, I don't know, nature to it, that his team always sort of stays steady. So if he's not there on the sideline, does that change? Or after 17 weeks, is that who this team is? I don't know. I guess that that's what we see. Right. I guess that's what we see on Sunday.
0: It's so interesting. The other interesting thing, not to go too far ahead, because clearly the Steelers will be, uh, I wouldn't say they're prohibitive favorites. I think they're favorites by four points or something like that, but rightfully so. And they're playing at home and all that. But I started to imagine today, what if the Browns win this game? Then, you know, the earliest, depending on uh, the interpretation of the results, The earliest that Kevin Stefanski, and uh, if, if if he's even healthy enough to come back, the earliest he could come back in all likelihood to prepare for a game to play the Kansas City Chiefs in Kansas City, the defending Super Bowl champs, coming off a week off the only bye in the AFC, that he'd be walking in the building either Thursday or Friday to prepare for that game and I'll tell you one thing, this is COVID 2020 slash 21 up the yin yang or whatever. But I just I, I honestly feel like this this could end up being one of the most incredible stories in, you know, in NFL history. And I think one day maybe Tom Cruise is going to play Kevin Stefanski. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but oh, my God.
1: Who, wait, who, wait, who, wait, wait, I, I need, need to go back. I need to go back.
0: Who aren't would place defense though? Aren't,
1: aren't the Ravens the seventh seed?
0: No, uh, Baltimore's the fifth seed.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Indian Indianapolis is the seventh seed. Okay. So if Indianapolis so
1: were thinking that that the, Indianapolis. Into the Bills and that the Ravens yeah. would then go to Buffalo and the Browns would go to Kansas City, that's what you're saying.
0: No, what, yeah, what I'm saying is, no, what I'm saying is that the lowest remaining seed would play the Kansas City Chiefs. And what I'm saying is, I think Buffalo is going to beat Indianapolis this weekend. Yeah. Yes. And if that happens, and Cleveland wins the game, it's Cleveland at Kansas City, and then it'll be the Tennessee Baltimore winner at Buffalo. That's, that's all I'm saying.
1: Okay, and who do you like in the, wait? Who do you like in the Tennessee Baltimore game?
0: I have no earthly idea. Really? I mean, if, if I had to pick somebody, I'd take Tennessee. Because oh, I think
1: would, I would take Baltimore. I don't I, think, I, think, I just think games.
0: Ryan Tannehill's a lot better than he was a year ago. And you know, they got the state of the art running back. But again, I I would not I wouldn't be surprised if Buffalo won by two touchdowns, but I just I think I, I'm not I don't think it's quite a coin flip game. I think Tennessee's a little bit better, but hey, they're both playing great. So who knows? You know, <laughs> you just don't know. You don't know.
1: That's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah.
0: All right. So now you got to answer my question: Who's playing Stefanski in this miracle oh. movie when they when Cleveland ends up making the Super Bowl?
1: Well, Clooney's too old, right?
0: Yeah, I would say. Or, or, he I actually mean, kind of looks like him, doesn't
1: he? <laughs> that's, that's why I'm saying it. And, yeah. you know, George Clooney is also very slight. You know, Kevin Stefanski is yeah. not a big guy by any means. He's uh, kind of got that Ivy League demeanor to him. Yeah. And Kevin's got that uh, salt and pepper going for him, like Clooney. I'll take,
0: I'll take Clooney for that role we uh, actually might want to play it a month from now if if it's as miraculous as we think it is um let's let me ask you two other quick things um it sounds like you think the browns will handle this pretty well
1: i'm not saying that i believe they will win on sunday but i do think that they i i don't Depending on what the personnel situation is, let's see how many people are rolled out over the course of the next right. right. In terms of psychologically, emotionally, mentally preparing for the game, I think that this is a team that has been prepared to weather all sorts of storms. You know what, Peter? Again, I'll come back to this. You have a brand new head coach. You have a brand new offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. You're installing brand new schemes and you don't even get in front of these coaches until August. Yeah. I feel like the foundation that Kevin Stefanski put in, the four H's, the way that he figured out how to build some sort of sense of team and unity, the four H's was this way to bond and learn more about your teammates when you were meeting virtually. The way that he, again, built that foundation, I just feel like it doesn't go away in a week. And I I don't at all want to minimize his role or his impact. You know, I, I said to you at the top of our conversation, I personally believe he's coach of the year. And you've said that you have also selected him in that way. But I also think that a lot of coaching happens during the week. And he is indeed getting to participate virtually in yeah. the in week coaching, and so on game day, if he's the sort of coach who empowers his coach to do their jobs, then I don't know i I just i I think that in in some ways it almost feels like Joel Batonio is a uh more tangible discernible loss yeah. than Kevin, simply because Kevin will be a part of everything up until you get to those three hours,
0: yeah, yeah
1: um but also it let's see what happens over the course of these next few days i also think that the steelers have shown some life in the last game and a half and they had seemed dead and drained i mean just i had never seen a team so drained so dead so out of it as what they were during that losing streak they seem to have more life to them and i'll say very quickly about ben roethlisberger that You know, I asked him very early in the season how he has had to adjust physically to aging. And he (laughs) said that he needs to throw with his whole body more than he ever had before. That when he was young, it was just about what his arm could give him. And now he has to use everything. So if we are to follow that same line of thought, he's gotten to rest his legs for an entire week. And while... In general, you would think that carrying the momentum from that great second half against the Colts in Week 16 would have been important to build on that momentum. Maybe for him, getting that rest, since he's almost 39 years old, was really vitally important. And you think back to earlier in the season, he also spent the week on the COVID reserve list because of close contact, and he didn't practice all week. And then he came out and he played the Bengals, and he played basically the best game that he'd played up until that point. So maybe there's something to be said for that.
0: Well, I find it interesting that after he was, uh, you know, on the couch for a week at home, he walks into the facility and walks into Hines Field and puts up 36 on the Bengals. And then the next week puts up 27 and they were out the Jaguars. But in the six games since then, Pittsburgh has scored 19, and let's not count Sunday's game because Roethlisberger wasn't in it. Right. But they put up 19, 17, 15, 17, and then 28 against Indianapolis when, in my opinion, they did what they should have done more of the whole year, which was throwing the ball downfield a decent amount. Right. So I guess my question is, this has been a really stuttering offense with Roethlisberger until the Indianapolis game. What Pittsburgh team do you think shows up on Sunday night?
1: Well, and Matt, and I love that you say that because I keep coming back to that, that this game will depend on which Ben Roethlisberger we see. And I'll add one more point. Ben Roethlisberger is arguably one of the most competitive human beings I've ever been around in my entire life. I was talking to one of his former teammates earlier today who said, if only because Mason Rudolph had such a strong outing on Sunday, that alone will motivate Ben Roethlisberger to show yeah. everything that he has left. I, uh, If you had asked me a week and a half ago, I would have answered differently. But I do think that we will see the Ben of the beginning of the year, the one that seemed to just read defenses so well, who was better pre-snap than he's perhaps ever been in his career, who just was making the smart decisions, who was taking what a defense gave him as opposed to trying to force anything. You know, he really played tremendously until the end of the second quarter at Tennessee. It was just such smart, smart, smart football. And, And I'll come back to... We were talking to Jack Conklin, who's the Browns right tackle yesterday, and I had asked him, you know, what's sort of the biggest growth in Baker Mayfield? And he said something that I used to say about Eli Manning all the time, effectively, that he's learned to throw the ball away and live to see another down. And, you know, if you think back to when we used to watch Eli, he wasn't the gunslinger who was always trying to make something happen and maybe risk major You know, calamity, it was sometimes you just have to throw the ball away and punt the ball and come back the next series, or sometimes you have to throw the ball away and wait for the next down. And Baker has gotten a lot smarter at that. And I would say that Ben, for all of the, you know, he competes until the play is done until the whistle is blown. Sometimes that was magnificent, and sometimes that was, ugh, why didn't you just throw the ball away?
0: Right, right, In the beginning
1: right. beginning of this year, Peter, he just was playing such smart football. There was none of that trying to take what wasn't there, trying to be the gunslinger, trying to make magic out of nothing, and you know, then it changed a little bit. And obviously the Steelers have absolutely no run game and showed no interest in running. And there is zero offensive creativity. There's really not any sort of discernible offensive game plan, which doesn't help Ben in any way either. But um, I do think that the.
0: Give me my pet theory on this. Okay. Okay. And now. (laughs) So you're, you're around the team a lot, but I, I've just noticed this in the second half of the season. And again, I'm not going to count the Cleveland game because Roethlisberger didn't play. But uh, starting against Jacksonville, I figured this out on Sunday. I didn't write it in my column. I didn't really know what it meant. And I'm not even sure what it means now. But in the six games before that, I probably watched 80% of the Steelers' snaps. And I kept saying to myself, why does Ben Roethlisberger love Deontay Johnson so much?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I
0: know know how good Deontay Johnson is. He's a tremendously good deep threat. But his drops this year have been maddening. And so I went back and I looked up the targets. And the targets in the six games before uh, Cleveland, before the the, the game last week, Deontay Johnson, 75, Juju Smith-Schuster, 50, Chase Claypool, 41. And I just said to myself, what's different? About, and what, what prompted me to do this is that on Sunday, Mason Rudolph treated Deontay Johnson like the fourth or fifth receiver. Threw to him four times. And, and he threw to Smith-Schuster and Claypool a lot more percentage-wise than Roethlisberger had been. And, and this is just an absolute guess, but in my opinion, Uncharacteristic of what a smart veteran does, I think. Uh, I think Roethlisberger has been doing one of two things. He's been micro focused, nut job focused on trying to make sure that Deontay Johnson isn't ruined by all these drops. So he wants to keep going to him. That's number one. And number two, he realizes that you hit the lottery when you hit this deep, and he's such an incredibly good deep threat. Let's keep giving them those chances. So I don't know. I throw that on the table to you, and I just would love to hear what you think.
1: So I think Deontay Johnson is the biggest game breaker on this offense. He's the one that is the Antonio Brown-era parent. And uh, it's not only deep. It's what he can do in space. It's, you know, even if you give him the ball short, how he can make guys miss. I do think that Ben Roethlisberger has gotten very, very good about if a guy drops the ball, I'm going to go right back to him because I don't want his confidence to suffer. A young man who was here a a few years ago, Sammy Coates, who was seemingly, you know, he wasn't a Martavis Bryant type talent, but he seemed to have some talent and then just, you know, his head sort of fell apart. I think that that's part of it. I think the Chase Claypool thing confounds everybody. He just, you know, the, the Steelers went after him. They wanted to get a receiver, a receiver early. Their first pick in this draft was a second-round pick. They took him. He has been the big, deep, tall, rangy body that Roethlisberger hasn't had since Plexico Burris. Maybe he's been a revelation. And then all of a sudden, they started ignoring him. And when we asked yeah. my Mike- about this. One of Mike Tomlin's favorite phrases is, I don't live in my fears. And yet he said, Well, we didn't want him to run into a rookie wall. So we avoided that by, you know, stopping to force the ball to him, which really made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I think Juju is a little bit more of a security blanket for Ben. You know, they've got a lot of time together. I just, I don't, I, I think that if I had to guess. There is an, In all my years of covering the NFL, I have never seen a chemistry like the chemistry between Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown. And even Ben said that. Ben has worked with great receivers, Antonio Holmes, Heinz Ward, Plexico Baris. Um Even Ben said that there is nobody that he has ever worked with like Antonio Brown. And it was almost as if they shared a brain. You know, the, what they were able to do in improvisation, what they were able to do when... Right. Antonio was triple covered and Ben would still throw to him and expect him to make the play. I think that when he looks at Deontay, Deontay is the closest he has to Antonio. And he's just not there yet. But I also think that there's a lot of pressure on Deontay Johnson because it's all these short little passes. This idea of, you know, get out the ball fast and expect the receiver to run far. And it's almost like he's thinking about what he's going to do before he actually catches the ball, which is sort of the first thing that they teach you in Pop Warner, right? Like, catch the ball, then make your move. But these guys are making their move before they've actually secured the ball. And I think that when you have no run game and you keep hearing, oh, well, the short passes are the run game, the short passes are the run game, that increases the pressure as well. So I don't know. You know, I'll tell you a guy that I think is underused is James Washington. James Washington is actually an unbelievably strong receiver. He knows how to use his body. He's really good deep. And uh, he's a guy that's sort of fallen by the wayside, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it, it, again, though, I, their refusal to run the ball makes me crazy.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: that's, that's, it it's, it's, it's not an it's, inability. It's stunning.
0: It's a it really is stunning the Pittsburgh Steelers team <laughs> is gonna have to advance, will advance in the playoffs, only if Ben can throw for 350 a game and they don't turn it over it, because they're not gonna be able to run it very well. So that's that's really, really in my opinion, it's such an odd year. Look, it was odd that the Steelers had the strongest start in their history with a team that everybody thought was the second best team in the division. But it's odder still that They just have a running game that is one of the worst in the league. It's, you know, the game's very hard to figure out sometimes. Aditi, I don't know if you if you figured that out.
1: I I think that the piece that's so hard is that there are certain things that you think of as central tenets in the game of football. Yeah, yeah. One of those central tenets is that the Pittsburgh Steelers run the ball down, play great defense, and run the ball down your throat. And so it's sort of amazing to imagine an AFC North team and very specifically the Pittsburgh Steelers choosing not to run the football. That just feels weird. And you look to Ben Roethlisberger's two Super Bowl wins, his two rings, and they came behind great defenses and great run games. And historically, if you look at Ben, his greatest successes are when he has a strong run game and he's not asked to throw the ball 50 times. So I mean, but I, I mean, I, I don't know. I I can't. There's a reason that they make all that money and I don't, right, Peter?
0: <laughs> Sunday Sunday night is going to be awfully fun. You'll be there reporting. We'll be watching uh, Sunday night on your. Uh, uh, I'll have to be watching NBC. That's kind of where I work. Well,
1: but so here's the thing, Peter. Saturday Friday morning, Friday. Friday. yes. Yep. It's- Saturday morning and Sunday morning, the NFL Network will have game day live all morning long, and you will what see... What time
0: are you game day living on Saturday and Sunday morning? Do you do you know the times?
1: Well, Sunday is 9 to 1, for sure. Yeah. It's Saturday. Uh, I think Saturday is 9 to 1 as well. Wow. So I'll be outside a desolate Heinz field. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: Aditi Kinkabwala, really appreciate you taking the time. But, but I do want to close, but I, I do want to take a lot of credit I am the first person in the business who's pronounced your name correctly twice in one interview. So how does that feel exactly?
1: Well, and via an emoji. How about yeah, that? That's right, I have never even heard of or seen an Animoji until Look, you- I should
0: just tell everybody that before, I, I wanted to make absolutely sure I had Aditi's name correct. So I sent it to her and I said, it's the correct pronunciation okay. of your name. And I okay. sent it on an Animoji. What, like a tiger or a lion or something? Because I've gotten to send those now to people all the time, and they always laugh. And I said, I'm, there it is, look. I just want to make sure, I want to pronounce your name perfectly. (laughs) Aditi Kinkabwala. Is that
1: correct? How perfect is that?
0: That is so great. I love that. But... You know, and, then, I, and then,
1: just so everybody sees, then I got a bear, then I got a lion, and then I got a unicorn, and I have oh. never even seen this before.
0: So uh, well, you know,
1: you know I need to gonna take. Up, it's it's gonna,
0: listen, it's going to take a sixty-three-year-old dinosaur to teach <laughs> the youngster a new a new trick or two. But anyway, hey, I really appreciate you taking all the time. Thank you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Peter.
0: For the biggest names in sports talk. Watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock, featuring Pro Football Talk, The Dan Patrick Show, The Rich Eisen Show, and more,
1: streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports.
0: And now my conversation with the Chief Medical Officer of the National Football League, Dr. Alan Sills. Back on the Peter King podcast, happy to be joined this week by uh, one of the men of the hour in the National Football League, the NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills. Uh, and, and Dr. Sills, I'd be remiss, obviously this is Tuesday late afternoon of wildcard week and a couple of hours ago news broke that Kevin Stefanski, the coach of the Cleveland Browns, uh, and a couple of other players and coaches including their Pro Bowl left guard Joel Batonio, have tested positive for COVID and will miss the game Sunday night in Pittsburgh. And so I want to start there and just ask you um, whether there was any discussion or whether there has been any discussion um, of more of an outbreak in Cleveland and the possibility of having to delay this game at all.
2: Well, Peter, as you know, anytime we have a positive case, we go through the same set of steps, and that is we go through the contact tracing and we try to determine where the infection might have come from or where it might have been transmitted, and we also look at who else might be affected by you know, exposure to those individuals that have tested positive. So I think that, and uh, in, in, in part of that analysis, as you know, goes into the contact tracing data we have. We also obviously look at at schedules about who's been around who. Um, and and then household and community exposures. We also have that genomic epidemiology data that we've talked about before where we can look at and, and determine um, our cases actually related to each other. So I know we, we had a situation in Cleveland last week, as you know, and um, in working through that, we did all of those steps that I just described and we felt like we had a reasonable understanding of that outbreak. Um, certainly, it took some time to get to that point because of the pattern of cases. But we did have more than one strain there, which suggests again that you've got some community spread going on. By the time we got to the weekend, you know, we had everyone testing negative. As you may know, we tested the entire team on a rapid PCR test on Sunday morning before the game, so we could say with confidence that all the players who got on the field um, did, were not infected. And and again, all of our other tests returned back negative from game day as well. So we are obviously looking at a different situation now and, and we'll go through that same set of steps and again, try to understand any relationships. We'll let the genomic data inform us about that and we'll make the best and the safest decision that we can there. Um, I think it's each day that goes by, you learn more based on what the test results show you. But remember that there's a lag. Um, anytime you're seeing positive tests, that exposure typically happens somewhere three to five days earlier. That's why for our high risk close contacts, we keep them out for five days. So. The, the facility um, has been shut down for players, coaches and staff, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays since we started our intensive protocol. And as you as you mentioned, the teams had zero activity there today. And so we think with those mitigation measures, if transmission occurred at the end of last week, we should be in good shape by the end of this week as we approach game day.
0: We have discussed uh, some of the different ways of being positive and. One of the things that has interested me, and one of the pieces of knowledge that I've gained through the course of this year, is that positive tests can be one positive test can be very much different from another positive test. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it can have different genomic sequencing. So, mm-hmm. would you just explain that to people so that they would understand why you might know that you feel that maybe these positive tests? did not come from inside the building in Berea, Ohio.
2: Right, so anytime that we get a positive test, we, we've partnered with a, a, a laboratory at Yale University that are world experts in this genomic epidemiology. And so they will take the actual sample that, that showed the viral uh, DNA, and then they will sequence that, meaning that they'll go in and look at all the individual genes and map that out um, in, in a pattern. And they do that for each of the positive individuals. And viruses, um, as they are existing over time, will change slightly. Um, If you look at a virus that passes, let's say from me to you, and then if you pass it on to someone else, once it's passed on a couple of times, that virus changes slightly. I like to say it has a slightly different fingerprint. And so if you look at the fingerprints, if those fingerprints match up exactly, And you can say, well, Peter's virus looks exactly like the one of Alan. Now you have a pretty good evidence that either I passed it to you or you passed it to me, depending on when our exposures were. But if we bring in a third person and the fingerprint of that virus is totally different, then we know that they didn't they weren't part of a transmission chain from me to you to them. It's got to have come from somewhere else. And so if we've got those fingerprints for all of those virus samples from within the team, if we see a fingerprint that doesn't match anything, then we know that it's much more likely to go from the community. And we're able to go one step beyond that because again, our partners at this, this Yale Laboratory, they have virus samples and, and DNA sequences from around the country. And so they know the types of samples that typically are in these communities, and, and they can say, yes, that, 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 that fingerprint that didn't match, it does match some of the samples that we're seeing in the Cleveland area at this time. So that's not 100% evidence, but it's pretty strong presumptive evidence that it was community spread brought in rather than passing among people in the facility. So
0: in, in layman's terms, any or all of these positive tests could have been uh, either at home or, you know, bro, you, you, you know, it, when you went and picked, out, uh, picked up uh, takeout food at a restaurant or something like that, you, you are fairly sure that they did not come from inside the training facility or stadium?
2: Well, I think we have a mix in, in, in Cleveland, Peter. And again, we're still working through this. Um, It may well be that there were a couple of cases that were passed from one person to another in last week's outbreak. We don't have that data on what's going on currently, what we're seeing. But it is also correct to say that some of the cases had nothing to do with transmission in the team. They were coming from the community. And again, that's not a surprise at the time that we're looking at this. You know, Cleveland was about third highest in the league in terms of the community incidence of disease. And so to your point, as you're going out and just moving in the community and doing day to day activities, people do get exposed. And that's a source for infection. And let me let me say it even one other way, Peter. And that is if you look over the last six to eight weeks, the overwhelming majority of infections we've seen. You know, outside of the one team outbreak in Baltimore, the overwhelming majority of infections we've seen have come from the community, have come from households. They haven't been spread around within team
0: environments. And so, one other question, just about the logistics of this: every one of the tests, every one of the PCR tests, which is the most reliable current test, um, you know, about COVID nineteen. Every one of those tests is taken by a company. Called bioreference labs. Mm -hmm. And Cleveland's tests are then taken from their facility to a bioreference lab, and Mm -hmm. then the results are taken from there. If there is a positive out of one of those PCR tests, is that test then physically sent to Yale, or is there another way to examine it that doesn't require that sample going from the bioreference lab? to Yale in New Haven, Connecticut?
2: Well, typically we will go from the Bioreference Lab to Yale, but sometimes we'll collect an additional swab, maybe on the following day's test of that infected individual, because we continue to test them. And, and we might take that swab directly from Cleveland to the lab, you know, just again, depending on the circumstances. But but you're correct in saying that um, the first analysis is done to is the test positive or not. That's done by bioreference. And the same company, as you mentioned, uh, does all NFL samples so that they're sort of run on an equivalent type of system. And, and then the additional testing is once the samples have been analyzed, you know, with that first layer of is it positive or not, then you can go on and do the genomic testing from there.
0: Is the bioreference lab that Cleveland tests with uh, that they use in the Cleveland area or is it sent somewhere else?
2: No, it's sent somewhere else. Um, and it's sent to another facility that tests, you know, off the top of my head, maybe 10 or 12 of our teams. OK.
0: Um, let me also just ask you in this specific case, um, assuming if, if the information comes out today, I'm just assuming that this must have come from a test that was taken on Monday. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So does that mean that for a player or a coach that it still is a minimum of 10 days, even if they test negative by the end of the week, it's a minimum of 10 days before they are allowed back into their team.
2: That's correct, Peter. For any case that's a confirmed positive, it is a minimum of 10 days, whether they have symptoms or no symptoms. Um, Again, when I say the term confirmed positive, we obviously keep an eye on the test results because we expect a certain pattern if it's it's an absolute positive test. As you know, back earlier in the season, we had one episode of of a contamination event in a laboratory way back in August. We've not seen that be repeated. Um, but you know, that's something that we're always on the lookout for, but if it's a confirmed positive test, it is 10 days out and that's not NFL policy. That's obviously CDC and other
0: public health guidance as well. That would mean that if the Cleveland Browns won on Sunday night, that Kevin Stefanski, Joel Batonio, and any other positive test would be eligible if they become negative, uh, would it be 10 days? So the following Thursday, the Thursday following this weekend's games.
2: Right. It's, it's what the CDC calls their 10 plus one rule. So it's 10 days from when the positive test was taken, plus one day of at, at least one day of no symptoms. So if you do have symptoms, you've got to be asymptomatic for 24 hours. So that's the so-called 10 plus one rule.
0: OK. And one more question on this. Is there going to be any discussion for any reason of postponing this game?
2: Well, again, Peter, I think we said that we will only postpone games if we think there's a health risk to individuals that are involved. We wouldn't postpone them for competitive reasons. That's kind of been the league's policy throughout. Um, Obviously, that's not a decision made solely by me. I think that's an active discussion among other uh, league officials, but um, our job my job is to is to make sure that we provide the best medical information, and one of the things we've said throughout and you've heard me say before is we never want to put a team on the field unless we feel confident that there's not ongoing transmission, and that to the best of our knowledge, there's no one that's infected that will be part of that game so we'll use that same standard in in this case and in all the games we have remaining
0: let's take a go a global view of what's happened this year in the NFL. When I met you in Nashville in August you told me and i quote america should be rooting for us to succeed <laughs> and you explained essentially that we all want life to go on in some form of normalcy and so you know, wouldn't you just want all the games to be played in an nfl season isn't that one of the things that that you really want to see happen with that as a backdrop are you a little bit celebratory. Did you pop one champagne cork <laughs> on Sunday night when you played the 256th game?
2: No, I, I, I mean, I think, Peter, the, the 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 mood or the thought that I had was just one of incredible gratitude. I mean, if you look back over the journey over the past five months and you think about the effort that it's taken to get to this point, I, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. I mean, it starts with players and coaches and the day-to-day sacrifices and hard choices that they've made and the flexibility and the adaptability that they've shown, um, this wouldn't be possible without that. And when I talk about hard choices, Peter, we talk about things like not attending a funeral of a close relative where people have avoided that so they didn't get exposed, or not attending family events like weddings or birthdays, people choosing to separate from their families at the holiday time. And I could go on and on and tell you those stories and you've heard many of them too. That's that's an incredible sacrifice on, on the part of many, many people. But I also have incredible gratitude just to the, to the army of, of medical folks who've worked together here, the infection control officers at the teams, the team doctors, and then on the NFL side, the, the army of people that we've sort of brought to this effort. Um, so I was really just overwhelmed with gratitude and, and just incredibly proud of that effort. You know, we've always prided ourselves on the medical side of working very closely together. It's not a competitive thing between teams. I don't think we've ever worked more closely together than we did this year. And I also am what I am very proud of is the fact that, Peter, we've contributed positive knowledge to the public health effort about this disease. Um, we've had regular discussions with the CDC and, and we'll be publishing something with them quite soon. Uh, we've got some other publications. We've been in contact with the FDA and the White House Task Force. And the bottom line is what we've learned in the NFL from our testing and tracing programs that has been informative and has helped the medical community. And that's an achievement I think we can all
0: celebrate. You told me recently um, about the, this say Dog Eat Dog League. uh, But you told me some stories about the collegiality of teams and of your head athletic trainers and infection control officers uh, of wanting to share data so that one team might be able to help another. Is there any example there that you might be able to give me that, you know, people would normally think, oh, my God, keep all of your uh, knowledge internal. Don't share your knowledge with all the other teams. Yeah.
2: Well, um, one specific advanced example comes to mind where one of our, our team athletic trainers was was trying to figure out a way to positively determine that each player's tracking device was actually being worn and was working each day because Obviously, just like any of us, sometimes you can forget to grab the device and put it on, or maybe they were wearing it, but it wasn't working that day, and we didn't find out until a day or two later, and then you had a gap in the data. And so this, this trainer quite creatively came up with a way to, to place some extra devices strategically at some entry and exit points, and those devices ping off each other. You can see an actual you know visual sim, uh, a symbol if you set it in a certain way, or it can be an audio alert. And and his idea was to set it up in a way that he could actually monitor that. And and when he was describing that to me, he said, you know, we got to get this out to everybody. I really think this is going to help everybody in the league. And, and again, I was so struck by that because, as you mentioned, people think about competition, competition, you know, keeping the game plan secret or who's going to play or who's not. And and in this season, we've seen the exact opposite. We've seen how can we get together and help and support each other and work against this virus. That's been our common opponent. So there have been a lot of stories like that. That's one that comes to mind. But – you know, we've done calls regularly Peter with with all 32 teams with the medical staff and the infection control officers and and the collaboration and the collegiality is is just remarkable. It's it's very much been how do we as a league fight this virus, not how does one team
0: compete against another. You know, recently I wrote something about contact tracing and I quoted you as saying this is really the thing that no one is talking about that really is important. And after I learned about the aggressive form of contact tracing in which you can find out almost everybody inside the facility that they have been around as long as they have been around. And once you then start to interview the people, you can find out if, hey, this might be a close contact and this person might have become infected. You told me recently that during the season, there were 36 cases, where contact tracing found someone who then tested positive. And the inference is for people who don't know that that person was taken out of the football population at that point before he would be there for say a day or maybe even two days before that person would test positive or or would, would have been found to be positive. And by that time, he could have infected multiple people inside the team. So how important, in your opinion, has contact tracing been?
2: I just think it's absolutely foundational, Peter. I I think it, as I said to you earlier, it's the thing people aren't recognizing, but it's been hugely, hugely important to our success. I've sort of likened it to blocking and tackling. You know, when a, a quarterback completes a long pass or a running back rips off a long run, everybody says, wow, what a great pass, what a great run. It doesn't happen without an incredible effort at the line of scrimmage to either protect that quarterback or to open that hole. And in the same way, contact tracing may not Seem something that's important to everyone, but it's absolutely foundational to everything else we do, because as you said, it does two things. Number one, it makes sure that that one isolated case that we figure out who's at risk to turn positive uh, and that we can get them out of that team environment. And, And two, it prevents that widespread, you know, potential transmission event. Um, within the team. And so from that, we've learned a great deal. And our clubs have adapted. You know, Peter, as we've looked at those situations where we had high-risk close contacts, teams have said, okay, those are the environments where those high-risk close contacts occurred. How do we prevent that now? And so by the end of the season, the last few weeks of the season, for the cases we had that were positive, about 90% of them had zero close contacts, zero high-risk close contacts. That's the kind of progress that we wanted to see because that means people are really learning about that and they're doing all they can to prevent those high-risk close contacts. And that makes
0: us all safer. I want to ask you one other sort of meat and potatoes question about what happened this year. So what I noticed, I kept a tally of the total positives, positive tests each week. And through the end end of October, through mid season you were doing pretty well there were no more than 26 positive tests among players and coaches and close contact staff members trainers equipment people you know scouts pr people who were with the players every day so you were you were handling it it was never it never got to be as much even as one per team in any week of the season but then in november they of the of the four weeks in November. Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna tell you the week ending November 7, 56 positives, November 14, 52 positives, November 21, 70 positives, November 28, 86 positives. And I would look at those every week and I say, NFL's in trouble. Uh, I mean they cannot continue every week to have three positive tests per team mm-hmm. so will you explain to me and then we, we you know you get into december and I, it didn't plummet but it was basically cut in half starting in december so take me through a what you were thinking as those numbers are really going up uh, you know and really going way up in thanksgiving week and then what you did in december to sort of get a hold of this
2: well, I think there are a couple important points. First of all, if you look at the curve of our cases, as you talked about, it sort of mirrors and tracks what happened in the country as a whole. I mean, disease rates on the country were much lower back in September and October and then started to really climb. And in fact, if you look at a graph of the U.S. cases and a graph of NFL cases, they have the same shape. They're obviously quite a bit different in magnitude. And I think that is one other important point is even when our cases went up, our test positivity rates and actually our case incidence rate was still well below what we saw in other segments of society. And again, remember that we're talking about a community of between six and 8,000 individuals scattered across 32 different locations. And so as a snapshot of what's happening in the country, Uh, I think it makes sense that it would track along with those those same curves. And that's because, again, our players, coaches and staff go home at night to family members, other household members, and they're out in those communities. And when those case rates are spiking in those communities, everyone's going to get more exposed. But the second part of it is, if you remember way back when we started this, we said, look, we expect to have some positive cases. We just don't think we can eliminate those because of the community exposure. But what we want to do is prevent transmission within our facilities. We want to quickly identify those cases and get them isolated and make sure we don't allow them to spread. And as you pointed out earlier, I mean, we had two fairly substantial large scale team outbreaks, you know, over the course of the six months we've been doing this. So by and large, we were able to minimize those cases and and keep them separate and avoid, you know, Large-scale transmission. I think what happened in December is again a lot of the learnings that we had coming from uh, the the case loads we saw and the high-risk close contacts. People really doubled down on those efforts and said, "Okay, what can we do to avoid further spread, further transmission?" A lot of that uh, dates to when we put the intensive protocol in place for everyone. You know, that was a change we made around that time frame, as every team went under that intensive protocol, which was the most aggressive set of you know, in-facility options that we could put in place to prevent transmission. And then one other feature of that, Peter, I think was important is you may remember that we started prohibiting in-person activities on Mondays and Tuesdays of each week. So people just weren't in the building as much on those days, which gave us, again, a little buffer for detecting cases and preventing spread. So I think it was all those things added together. But um, but again, credit to our players, coaches and staffs for taking those those steps to, to, to drop those rates. At a time when, again, the the rates in the country continued to go up. So in December, the country continued to go up and ours went
0: down. Uh, I think that reflects that effort that everyone made. Three last quick questions for you. One is not so much a question, but an observation. Last week, I talked to Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts. It was uh, Tuesday late afternoon in Indianapolis. He was in his office at their training facility, which now I thought he would be home when I was speaking to him. We did one of these podcasts that was, uh, you know, on video conference. And uh, he said, no, I'm here, but I just can't talk to any of my coaches in person. Mm -hmm. And I had forgotten that little rule. But at the moment that I was talking to him, his defensive coordinator Matt Eberflus was in an office 10 paces away from where Frank Reich was sitting and he said I don't go see Matt on Monday and Tuesday if we're both in the building if I have to talk to him we either do it on video conference or just by phone Mm -hmm. and I said you could probably just sort of yell to him couldn't you 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 know hey Matt what are you thinking of doing on third and But And I asked him flat out, I said, you know, does it bug you at all? He said, no. He said, this is, you know, I'm for whatever the rules are. So I do want to tell you that I think you have really done a good job in getting people on board with doing things that five months ago would have been thought to be totally nonsensical.
2: Well, again, I just can't thank the coaches enough. They, they've they been incredibly supportive. And I think it's all about the why. You know, I think, Peter, when you go to them and say this is the why and in particular, this is our data. You know, we didn't go to say we think or maybe this is we, we said, here's what our data has showed. When we showed them the data about the reduction in close contacts by keeping away from in-person meetings or practices on Monday or Tuesday it's really a no brainer. And I think that's, that's what was foundational that when you show people the why, and when you show them the data, then they'll embrace it because everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to have all their players and coaches and staff intact. But again, our coaches have been terrific partners. And, uh, you know, in a typical season, Peter, head coaches don't spend a lot of time talking to the chief medical officer, but in this season, we spend a lot of time talking to each other. And again, great questions, great support, great dialogue. You know, never had any of them telling me, no, Doc, we can't do that or that's a dumb idea. It was all about, okay, given what you're saying and here's our situation, how can we make this work together? So a a really active dialogue, but but a great partnership.
0: Last two. It sounds like you believe that there will not be any sort of outbreak internally at the Cleveland Browns and that you probably have been able to stem the tide with the situation as it is now with the current positives?
2: Well, you know, Peter, there's a saying in medicine, never say never, never say always. Uh, You know, I'd hesitate to say that we absolutely can predict what's going to happen. I can just tell you that, you know, we'll continue to review the data, make the safest decision that we can. Cleveland has been incredibly proactive. They have a terrific athletic trainer and infection control officer. They've got a great staff, general manager. Everybody there has been Um, incredibly dedicated to this. In fact, one anecdote I'll tell you is on Saturday night before they played this past weekend at literally almost midnight local time, I was on the phone with the general manager and with the head athletic trainer and we were talking through some of the issues and logistics for the game on Sunday. I mean, that's how invested they are and wanting to do this right. So, you know, um, no, no, no predictions to be made. All I can say is they've been very aggressive and we've put all the risk mitigation measures in place. We know this virus is unpredictable, but um, as I've been throughout, I remain cautiously optimistic that we have a good, solid plan in place there and, and uh, we're going to get this thing uh, in,
0: in a positive direction. Someone asked me this in an email this week, and I thought it was a great question, and I don't have any idea, and maybe you do, and this will be what I'll end with. Do you have any idea when either the players or the staff or anybody associated with the NFL – will be able to take a vaccine in 2021?
2: Well, I think you see a lot of our members of our medical staffs already getting vaccinated through their hospitals, um, you know, just their, their regular day jobs, if you will. Um, and, and so I think that's the first wave that you'll see will be those healthcare providers that, you know, have other work outside the NFL. I think beyond that, we've said uh, consistently we don't plan to cut the line. Um, obviously, the, the public health priorities of who gets vaccinated when. Going to be determined by others, and so you know, we're not working on some kind of plan to try to find our way around that. What we've said is we support the efforts for vaccination. I think you're probably aware of the effort that we're going to bring vaccinated healthcare workers to the Super Bowl at our cost, we're going to pay for their ticket and their travel just because we're so grateful to them and because we want to let everyone know how much we support the vaccine efforts and the rollout there. But I think, Peter, we're just going to have to let that develop. And when it gets to the appropriate time when public health authorities say, "Okay, it's your turn, coaches and players, then we'll make a very aggressive effort to hopefully get everyone vaccinated based around education and and based around the experience that we have there.
0: Dr. Alan Sills, NFL chief medical officer, really appreciate your time this afternoon.
2: Thank you, Peter. Appreciate all that you do.
0: My thanks to Aditi Kinkabwala of NFL Network and Alan Sills of the National Football League for their insight. And one programming note, Sunday night, the final playoff game of Wild Card Weekend, Pittsburgh-Cleveland, will be on NBC. It'll be Sunday Night Football. It will also uh, be on Telemundo and Peacock, which is NBC's streaming service, which, who knows, you might be even watching my podcast on Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. Every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, you'll see me uh, interviewing, conversing with a lot of interesting people. Anyway, after the football game on Sunday night, you will also see a special edition of Brother From Another with Mike Smith and Michael Holly hosting a special Brother, Brother From Another post-game show right here on Peacock make sure you tune that in. You know, I'm pretty sure Holly is from Akron and he probably grew up inculcated in all things Browns. So I have a feeling the mood of that show is going to be based on whether the Cleveland Browns pull a miracle uh, without their head coach being at the game, without their Pro Bowl left guard being at the game. But we shall see. It's going to be a very, very interesting weekend. And one fun fact to know, The NFL has never had a six game playoff weekend ever. This is it. It's the first one. So enjoy your football, and I'll be right back here next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast.